0: Marijuana smoking, experts point out, can make a helpless addict of its victim within weeks, causing physical and moral ruin and death. The first legally sold marijuana here goes to an Iraqi war veteran.
1: A new insurance study out this week looked at car crashes in several states that allow the use of recreational marijuana. Barry You're a doc.
0: Course. You've studied this. You've talked to the researchers. You're right. saying marijuana can kill cancer cells. Who taught
2: you how to do this stuff?
3: You are right. I learned it by watching you. Marijuana
1: is illegal under federal law. States have legalized records. no wonder you can't open your eyes. What do you expect, doping yourself up with this wrong stuff? What do you know about pot?
3: Good morning. You are listening to the Cannabis Hour, a bi-weekly radio program where we discuss all things cannabis. Thanks for joining me today. I've got a very interesting show for you today we're going to be deviating a little from our topic we've been covering lately which has been a lot of cannabis regulation and we are going to be speaking with three researchers from uc davis who have been discussing um, the impact of cannabis on local economics those researchers here with me today are um, keith taylor at Taylor Giamo, and shortly we will be joined by a third researcher, Parisa Kovasi. I'm just going to go ahead and introduce them here while we wait for Parisa to join us. So just one moment here. All right, Taylor Giamo grew up in Napa Valley. During her time at Napa Valley College, she became involved with the Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and began taking classes at Oaksterdam University. She holds a BS in international agricultural development with a concentration in crop production from UC Davis. Um, Dr. Keith Taylor is a researcher with UC Davis and his research program focuses on the manner in which the cannabis industry's transition to legalization is impacting small and medium enterprise. Dr. Taylor is also analyzing how the cannabis industry impacts community economic development outcomes, particularly in rural regions. And I see that Parisa has joined us here. Thank you so much, Parisa. So I'll go ahead and introduce her as well. Parisa Cavusi has graduated with a degree from UC Davis in environmental science and policy. She has been working with Dr. Keith Taylor and Gwen Arnold on cannabis research, and she is hoping to pursue a career in medicine and explore the health benefits of cannabis. So thanks to the three of you so much for joining me today. Do you wanna go ahead and say hi to our listeners?
4: Hello, everyone.
3: Hello, everybody. (laughs) Thanks so much for taking the time to be here. So I'd like to start our program by just asking you all a question. Um, Taylor, I'll ask you first. And that question is, what is your personal relationship with cannabis?
4: Um, Well, growing up, I thought cannabis was a dangerous drug. But when I got high for the first time, that was really the first time I felt like I saw myself. Um, Feeling calm and whole was kind of this foreign concept to me. And cannabis provided me a lot of relief kind of like in my experience to willie nelson's he recalls in his memoir that um his love affair with pot became a long-term marriage and it was one of the smoothest of his marriages and that he and pot got along beautifully and chased away his blues and got him up when he needed it and to this day when people ask him why he smokes so much pot he says to keep down the rage and uh i really love that because basically same uh And once I realized cannabis is medicine, I understood how many people I love are harmed by cannabis prohibition, and I couldn't unring that bell. Uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy and the Drug Policy Alliance really became my mentors, and I saw how much pain, trauma, and hypocrisy there was behind the war on drugs. And I've been committed to researching cannabis ever since.
3: Thank you so much for sharing that. Parisa, do you want to go next and just share with us what is your personal relationship with cannabis?
5: Of course. Well, honestly, I'd have to say that my personal personal relationship with cannabis started doing this, just doing this research. And for that, I have gained a tremendous amount of respect for everyone in this industry who's really just trying to make it happen amidst so many challenges and struggles. Um, and per- personally, I would have to say like, I really do see cannabis as a medicine, and I'm really interested in exploring that area as well, and hopefully there can be more research for that. So I'm just trying to like build my connection going forward mostly, um, as can- with cannabis medicine. Um, that's my ideal relationship just to understand that area more.
3: Thank you so much for sharing that Parisa and Dr. Taylor, would you like to go ahead and just share with us? What is your personal relationship with cannabis?
0: Sure, Jen, uh, it, thanks again for having us on here. Uh, for me, uh, I, you know, I, I'm from the Midwest. And so, uh, I, I had, observed cannabis from afar all the legalization and when i landed out here in 2017 i fell in love with the north coast region as a research site it kind of feels a lot like the midwest in many ways with the kind of personalities that are out there a lot of the economic development issues and uh, truth be told i never thought i'd be studying cannabis and then um, we had a grant here uh, through the cannabis and hemp research center and I thought, oh well, heck, you know, if I can get this grant, and then it keeps me, you know, coming to the North Coast, that's great. And I, I got it. it. It it's for me kind of funny because I talked to my friends and family back in the Midwest. I'm like, hey, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a cannabis researcher now, <laughs> and um, so it, it, that part was funny. But my personal, like, deep connection to this is that I have this love for hard hit, marginalized communities. And uh, I I grew up in such a community where we always chase these various initiatives to help out with economic development and improving our communities. And I'm seeing that replicated again. Uh, I've learned a lot of lessons along the way, how we can harness this to make it really work. So for me, I'm seeing this deep connection where I can bring to bear a lot of my experiences and passions of helping communities transition to harnessing new economic opportunities to enhance her livelihoods. Uh, and that's largely where I'm coming from right now.
3: Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Dr. Taylor. So, Parisa Taylor and Dr. Taylor are with the Hemp and or the Cannabis and Hemp Research Center of UC Davis. And we're going to be speaking with them today about a body of research that they're currently working on. Taylor, do you want to go ahead and give our listeners um, a little bit of a background on what this research project is all about?
0: Yeah, sure. So when I started kicking the tires on uh, this whole project, there are a lot of claims made about what cannabis is going to do. So, you know, you listen to the governor and proponents of Proposition 64. uh, They're saying, you Cannabis, we're going to protect the small the small growers. This is going to be a new industry. It's going to um, help out with diversity, equity, inclusion, kind of the racial divide of you know, how cannabis policies have been implemented, all these claims. And then when you hit the ground in places like Mendocino, Humboldt, and all that, it, it doesn't really pan out the way that the, the claimants had said it would. So our research is looking at the claims and trying to understand what's going on. Does it have this deep economic impact? Does it improve the livelihoods of our small and legacy cannabis farmers as they move into the legal market? Uh, How can municipal governments benefit from this? And along the way, we're also trying to uncover some of the other areas of um, the the claims that are made things like finance. You can't bank with cannabis. Well, is that true? Are we seeing that in the field? What do we? What are the broad areas of knowledge that we do know about cannabis? You know, there's controversies around the environment. Does it pollute? You know, worse than any other crop. Well, we recently did a literature review on that to understand some of those issues. So, at a higher level, we're trying to understand the economic impacts of cannabis, uh, and then we're drilling down to enforcement issues and environmental issues along the way. Uh, Taylor and Prisa, would you say that's uh, an accurate approach?
3: Yes, very much. And uh, Taylor and Prisa, do you want to go ahead and just share what some of your findings have been in the field and Um, sort of how you've conducted your research?
5: um, So our research, as far as qualitative data, mostly took took form in the place of interviews with goers like you. (laughs) Um, And a lot of that kind of research that showed us is, is in terms of finance and banking is that a lot of people in the cannabis industry don't have um, access to affordable banking and oftentimes maybe there is a bank available to you a credit unit available to you but the prices are just outrageous and it's not it's not conductive for a grower who is already struggling you know to kind of stay afloat amidst licensing issues permitting issues all that money going for testing to mm-hmm. go ahead and pay a joke amount of 420 dollars a month just to bank your cannabis. Um, so that's one thing that we've been able to see out in the field. Um, in general, cannabis is largely underbanked, but it also appears that there may be some banks who are working with cannabis but not knowing it. And there are lots of growers who may be using that non traditional financing and lending as well. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the area that we're trying to explore, and we've seen a lot of um factors that in- indicate that banking is a big <laughs> big issue for um growers right now.
3: Yes, so I had my microphone muted while you were talking, but I actually started <clears throat> laughing when you referred to the joke amount of $420 because it <laughs> is <crazy>. true <laughs> and it's yeah. I can tell you as a cannabis cultivator myself it is so frustrating um the green taxing that goes on. With services that for someone outside of cannabis would cost, you know, a totally reasonable amount. And then as soon as you're a cannabis cultivator, it costs $420 or some other ridiculous amount of money. So thank you for noticing that and um, also (laughs) thinking it's ridiculous. (laughs) And I wanted to ask (laughs) quickly, yeah, for our listeners who might not know, would one of you be willing to define qualitative data? or maybe just yeah just like explain a little bit what the term means for people listening who might not know what that means
4: yeah so we have um we're doing qualitative research and quantitative research right now so a mixed methods approach and the quantitative data that we're collecting is numbers and the qualitative data that we're collecting is gathered through interviews and we basically go through these interviews and find some key themes common across all of them and group them into a category and are able to quickly run through the interviews we have done to identify these key themes and who it is affecting. And what Thank I would you add, so much.
3: It, mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead.
0: What I would add to that, Jen, is that um, additionally, we're looking at policy documents. So it, the, the great thing for us uh, being in the field uh, you know, the uh, Taylor and Parisa both spent some time at the Hopland Research and Extension Center, mm-hmm. fantastic place. And um, you know, we we have our observations that we can get from afar. You know, from you know talking to policy folks in Sacramento, but when you get on the ground, there's some pretty brilliant cannabis farmers around mm-hmm. there, and they sort of tell you where the policy bodies are are buried, so to speak. Uh, so we couldn't do this research were it not for the direct participation of cannabis farmers and cannabis stakeholders who guide us and say, if you're studying this issue, you need to understand this policy. And, uh, you know, one thing to the credit of folks there in Mendocino, there are so many really talented and brilliant folks. Uh, they themselves are kind of their own policy wants as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just want to really reemphasize that part of qualitative is not only collecting interview data, but also, people on the ground kind of steering us in, a right, in the right direction and making sure our research is precise.
3: Yeah, thank you for saying that. And I will tell our listeners that part of my goal with the program here today is not only to highlight the work that um, Dr. Keith Taylor and Taylor and Parisa are all doing together, but also <clears throat> to encourage our listeners to get involved with this project and allow them to be interviewed because it is very worthwhile. I myself participated in this project, which is how I came to connect with these three for the interview today. So um, towards the end of the show, we'll of course give contact information and everything like that. So our listeners can contact them if they have more questions. So moving along, would you like to talk about some of the findings around banking and lending that you came across while you were doing your research?
5: Um, In terms of findings, from the qualitative interviews at least it seems like there is a significant amount of people who do sort of a non-traditional banking you know maybe they have some money sashed away in a hole somewhere and what we've encountered um is that that's a public safety issue and we've seen that theme over and over again that there's an issue of having large amounts of cash just unsecured um leaving you potentially vulnerable to burglary theft and crime and just it's not um, it's not a good idea and one of the main arguments that we've seen throughout it is that there's a need for Candace banking, not only for a convenience issue, but also for a safety, public safety issue. Um, that's one theme we've encountered. Um, another theme is just in general, the, how hard it is to stay afloat in the industry, even if it's not directly related to finance fees, but it's just that like you guys have so many factors work, working against you. And it's like banking, I imagine, kind of takes a downfall or like a back burner seat when you're dealing with, you know, your licensure, if you can stay on the legal market, your 280 taxes, all of these sort of things that cut away at you. So it's, that's just like, imagine a small, small, significant piece, but it's really just one (laughs) issue that you guys are dealing with amongst many. Um, So yeah, it, it does appear that a lot of banks are banking with cannabis unknowingly. And, there also may be um, maybe kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy going around with some banks. Um, it's kind of what we are seeing. And a lot of growers go into non-traditional lending arrangements. Um, we've heard some of that going on. Um, does anyone else have anything to add? To uh, it that? seems like
4: there is a... Divide between small and large cannabis. When it comes to banking, it seems like smaller mm-hmm. farmers have a harder time getting access to to money and bank accounts. But if you are a larger uh, cannabis producer, you may have the uh, fire hose of money to mm-hmm. tackle those issues.
0: And, you know, Jenna, I, I'd be remiss not to mention uh, we do have a couple other colleagues that are working with us. Uh, we have uh, Professor Gwen Arnold out of UC Davis. Uh, And then Professor Zoe Plakias, she's out of Ohio State. And then uh, a postdoc, uh, Nathan Goodman, he's at New York University. And um, Zoe has been driving on the banking uh, side of our research. So Mm -hmm. to piggyback on what Taylor and Pariser are saying, uh, Zoe pulled down some bank data. And I can't forget what it is other than it's some sort of a public data set. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you talk to some of the banks, they'll tell you, oh, you know, we're not touching cannabis banking. But we did uh, some sort of a statistical uh, regression. And I apologize, I'll have my methods down here, uh, because that was Zoe's paper that (laughs) she took a lead on. But what she found in looking at the records of all these banks that were saying we're not banking cannabis was a very strong connection between uh, local legalization, local licensure, and growth in total deposits at the local bank. (laughs) Meaning... It's very likely that the banks are indeed banking local cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, but to piggyback also on what Taylor was saying, there's definitely a divide between the large and the small cannabis, in that small folks are getting frustrated when they go to the banks. There seems to be a lot of uh, bumps and bruises along the way to deposit. But with the larger cannabis farmers, cannabis producers, it seems like they're able to get access to the big guys. You know, we're talking to the city banks of the world and that sort of thing. Hmm. So even though on paper, it's not necessarily legal to bank, you know, with uh, across interstate lines, in practice, it appears to be happening.
3: Mm, That is fascinating. I love the method of looking at the amount of deposits um, in cannabis heavy areas as a way to tell if people there are banking uh, with cannabis or not, or if the banks are banking with cannabis farmers, rather. That is very interesting. And someone who was speaking earlier, I believe it was Parisa, had mentioned that um, they found that some growers were entering into non-traditional lending arrangements. So by that, did you mean um Sort of like private loans?
5: Um, I think it would fall more into the lines of sort of getting help from your family and friends if that would count as non traditional, not having access to traditional financing and really kind of having to reach out to your own work and get money that way. <clears throat>
3: okay. Yeah.
5: I guess. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes. Thank you for clarifying that. So when I was speaking yesterday um, to Taylor in preparation for this show, we kind of developed, she had the idea of developing these three guideposts, economics, ecology and enforcement. So right now we're on economics. Um, We've talked about banking. What else do we want to discuss in terms of the findings around economics in this research?
4: Yeah, there's enormous potential for rural community economic development, and it's essential that we protect our homestead growers here in Mendocino. Um, It's difficult to coordinate, and producers and distributors can be all over the place sometimes, and the big guys have a lot of private equity keeping them afloat, which we can't say whether that's good or bad for the time being, but we know that small legacy farmers, uh, they're the incumbents, the legacy folks who created this market, so we just know that...
0: They need more production right now. Yeah, and, you know, the the thing that I'm observing, too, uh, one of the things that often happens when there's a lot of economic development opportunities, you, you see this in, um, you know, rural areas right now are dealing with server farms. That's a big economic opportunity right now. Uh, you know, back in the day, it used to be attracting manufacturing when there was more of that. Now what you're seeing is, you know, places like Santa Barbara or, you know, Lake County, they're going, hey, bring in the big grows here. And uh, it's under this assumption that it's going to have this huge impact. But when you look at a place like Mendocino, there's no doubt that a big share of the economy is dependent on these small and legacy farmers. And what we're seeing is some concerning developments um, with regard to undermining these small legacy. It's not to say anything negative about, you know, the larger folks at all. I I think that there's a place for them by all means. But with the small legacy, there's no doubt that they're going to go and spend more at your hardware store. They're going to spend more at your auto dealership. They're going to pay more in taxes. So the more that you're able to preserve the small growers, the greater that spillover effect is into the community. I'm very concerned that with the direction of cannabis legalization at the local and state level, we're overlooking or we're dismissing the small legacy growers. we need to figure out a way to incorporate them better. Now That said, one of the other things that we're finding, and you know Taylor and Preza can speak to this as well, um, there is what we'd call a collective action problem amongst the farmers themselves. Mm-hmm. You, know, you go back in the history, the legacy of these small farmers, and they were the back-to-landers. They were the kind of renegades that fought the law, and uh, what I've been saying a lot is, Congratulations. Y'all are the dog that caught the car. <laughs> you know, like, this is fantastic. You won. But now you you won. You have laws to follow. You have new markets to follow. I think the old way of being this sort of human, uh, you know, isolation farmer isn't going to sustain you. Um, that mm-hmm. said, it doesn't mean that you can't still be a quarter acre cannabis farmer if you join together with your other cannabis farmers. So we have sort of like these two tracks. There's the policy folks that are out there. They need to take the small farmers more seriously and the small farmers themselves, I think, need to take more seriously the implications of legalization what it means to work together to survive this transition into legal.
3: Mm, that is such a good point, Dr. Taylor. Thank you for saying that. I would love if you wanted to expand just a little bit on ways that you think the small farmers could work together um, to sort of
0: survive. Yeah, so Jen, anyone knows me, they know I have this overall love of uh, small, medium business as well as cooperatives. Cooperatives are a, a, a passion of mine. So ideally, the cannabis farmers in the region would work to form cooperatives. Um, I think that if it was properly done, you could have multi-million, if not multi-billion dollar cooperative made up of small farmers. (laughs) Um, Now, you know, that's the aspiration, right? There's still a lot of things that have to be overcome and all that, but by joining together, the small farmers could then have market and political power. So instead of saying things like, well, it's difficult for us to access this distributor, it's difficult for us to get access to retail, if there was the collective power of the farmers, they could negotiate together for bulk contracts with the folks down the value chain. Uh, additionally, you know, in a place like Mendocino, I've, I've observed this already. Like, again, when I landed out here from the Midwest, I was like, well, three and a half hour drive to get there. No big deal. You know, I'm used to that from the Midwest. But in the Midwest, it's flatland. It's just a straight, <laughs> boring drive. Um uh, It's a lot more difficult to get out to those hinterlands in Mendocino, Uh, which also means if it's difficult for me from Davis to get there, then it's difficult for folks to Mendocino to get to Davis in Sacramento to talk about policy. Mm -hmm. If the cannabis farmers would work together stronger, you know, you have folks like the MCA, the Cannabis Association there, Mendocino. Um, Then you could put the resources collectively behind your own lobbyist who's going to go speak on behalf of the collective interests of the folks there. So there's sort of like a strong association where it incorporates market aspects. That'd be the co-op. But then uh, another arm would be your policy side, which would be existing associations that are there and kind of doubling down on those relationships. Uh, Does that answer your question, Jen?
3: It does. Thank you so much. And I have to say, I do agree with you. Um, Something that came to mind when you were speaking was the popularity of agricultural collectives in the dairy industry, for example. Mm -hmm. We know that's really been key in helping small dairy farmers survive. And of course, organic vegetable producers um, also form local cooperatives often that help them sort of reach wider markets and navigate some of those hurdles that small businesses can um, have a hard time getting over when they sort of enter the commercial sphere. So I think those are great ideas and they're very valuable. So thank you for elaborating on that. Um, Is there anything else that we want to talk about related to economics and your research before we sort of move into ecology?
2: Well,
4: it seems like in order for the economics to work, we need to uh, give our legacy farmers that financial support. Um, In my opinion, I think we should be giving more grants to our small farmers to allow them to farm ecologically, giving them more time to get compliant. Um, and streamlining processes that farmers have to use to become compliant so it's less of a stress on them. My, my understanding is that a lot of farmers are burning their candle at multiple ends and it's not sustainable, so
0: we need to give them more financial support. Breezy, did you have anything to say here? Otherwise, I had another follow up.
5: Um, no. no.
0: Okay. so. One other thing I would add here uh, that I think about is, um, you know, you talk to the small, small farmers and they get frustrated with some of the local policy issues. And I get it. You know. I'm not going to say anything with regard to how the county operates or local municipalities, because I'm being charitable charitable in that rural communities just have a lot of resource constraints, period. Now, that said, when we look at these problems, we also have to understand there are solutions that are out there. And, Jen, this is going to feed into the other parts that you want to talk about with regard to, you know, enforcement issues and the environment. So when I think of compliance issues and running through licensure and all this sort of thing, yeah, yeah, there's definitely challenges with the county scaling up and meeting those needs. But the county doesn't have to do this in isolation. Uh, there's ways that we've dealt with this in numerous other instances and other industries where instead of your local county dealing with this, they form into kind of regional compacts with other surrounding counties. This way they too pool resources so they can have more efficient uh, kind of regulatory services and that sort of thing. So I think that there needs to be some more creative thinking going on uh, in the county to grease the skids as we move forward with full legalization. I also I would encourage the small farmers to come forward with a lot of solutions. At the same time, I'd also encourage them, the county to open up a pathway for listening seriously to the cannabis farmers on these solutions as well. Um, so a lot of it is just kind of opening up these regulatory bottlenecks that help them operate a lot more smoothly and a lot more with within the regulations, sure, but also within the culture of small cannabis too.
3: Thank you for that. So I would love to move on to talking about ecology and the environment. This is a really timely topic for us to be discussing here on the Cannabis Hour because we are in such a drought crisis and cannabis has really been um, of a lot of focus lately in our environmental community. We've had a lot of discussions around the amount of water that cannabis uses And of course, um, pollution and runoff and disturbance of the natural environment; these have all been hot topics surrounding cannabis always. So, I'm wondering if there was a part of your research that sort of focused on ecology or environmental impact, and what would you like to share with us about that?
4: Yeah, um, in our literature review for our last paper, we were digging through some papers that the Cannabis Research Center at Berkeley published and. Uh, Christopher Dillis published a great paper saying that cannabis uses about the same amount of water as tomatoes. Uh, So we, we know from that, that it's not as thirsty as uh, people once thought. And to that point, we need more research to see how sustainable cannabis is. And we want to focus on some main ecological principles first being diversifying species over time and in space in a way that promotes beneficial uh, biological interactions and synergies. And we want to maintain vegetative cover and continual living roots, lower disturbances to the soil, and we want to see how we can recycle inputs and build organic matter and nutrients. Um, So we definitely need more funding for that research and more Professors and researchers to step forward to take on the task of doing this research with the Mendocino County farmers.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I can't be more in support of that because it is something that we really need actual data to show how much water is being used and what kind of an impact it has. Because as of now, all we sort of have are these like personal concepts of how much water someone feels like cannabis uses. And it's all over the map. Um, is this something that you perhaps see UC Davis having a research group about in the future?
4: I would love to. That would be a dream. Um, we have great, talented researchers here at UC Davis. We are the agricultural school. Um, and I think it could be a beautiful partnership between Mendocino County, especially with the Hopland uh, Extension Center. Um, maybe We could potentially even do research on small farms, Uh And see actually how sustainable cannabis is my hunch just from visiting some farms is that cannabis farming is potentially more sustainable than other forms of agricultural production because of the unique history of um, back to the landers homesteaders they really care for their land and they see caring for their land as caring for their crop themselves and their community so i'm sure other farmers feel that way but it's it's different with cannabis farmers
0: What I would add to that, too, uh, we do have colleagues out of UC Berkeley's uh, Cannabis Research Center. Uh, I forget what the acronym of it is there. Uh, But uh, Van Busick and his team are doing some pretty phenomenal work around land use, and they do have open studies that are available for folks on their website. Uh, You know, one of the challenges, of course, here with capturing this type of data is that a lot of the small farmers are just that, they're small farmers. So how do you go out? We've developed a lot of tools to go out and study an almond farm, for example, and their water consumption. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot of presumptions that agriculture is big. So the tools we have don't actually look at what small agriculture can do uh, positively and negatively on the environment, which know, Maybe that's an indictment of some of the ways that we do agricultural research. I don't know. Uh, But Van Busiek and his team are trying to do some pretty cool studies on this to understand uh, just what is the environmental impact. And from what I recall, and this is up to the audience to go and look to see what they've put forward. um, From what I recall, they show a mixed bag. So I think we all know our cannabis farmers that do pretty amazing biodynamic research uh, uh, practices, mm-hmm. where they're trying to do things like permaculture and all that good stuff. And then we also know the horror stories of the folks that are siphoning water off a of neighbor's well and that kind of thing. Uh, when you scale this up to the estimated ten to fifty thousand cannabis farmers in the region, uh, that's when it becomes uh, either a problem or a or a blessing. Um, So a lot of it comes down to a lot of the research methods and trying to herd the cats. That is the the cannabis farming sector.
3: Thank you. I would love to um, just reiterate at the end of our show today the name of that researcher at UC Berkeley. And I don't know if you possibly have a website or some search terms that you would recommend for our listeners to be able to plug into Google. Because I know that members of our community would be really interested in reading those research papers. That would be very timely information for us right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you're just tuning in this is the Cannabis Hour. I'm your host Jen Prokachi, and I am here today with three members of the UC Davis Cannabis and Hemp Research Center and we're discussing a recent body of research they did around the economics of cannabis in small, small rural communities We're going to be opening up the phone lines to callers in about 5 to 10 minutes. So if you have a question or a comment about anything that we've been discussing on the show today with these three wonderful individuals, don't hesitate to give us a call starting in about 5 or 10 minutes, and I'll give out the phone number then. So we have discussed the economics of what you found. We are talking right now about ecology, and we're soon going to move into the concept of enforcement. And we've talked about water and um, how cannabis farmers are more likely to be farming sustainably than other folks in agriculture. Is there anything else that we want to say around the um, concept of ecology before we move on to the next topic here?
4: Um, Just that, you know, when we get federal legalization, it'll be so much easier for the university to work with uh, cannabis, not hemp farmers. Um, there's a lot of constraints uh, with getting cannabis on campus, so we have to go out and research this stuff. So federal legalization will help uh, benefit research, definitely.
0: Well, Jen, I'd like to queue up Taylor. You know, Taylor's been doing a lot of interesting thinking about, um, you know, the kind of um, the genetics of cannabis with regard to uh, terroir, uh, with regard to, um, you know, oh, she, and she knows these terms better than me. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is, is, is cannabis gets to be more and more uh, normalized. Uh, there's going to be people that are going to be trying to profiteer off of the genetics of cannabis. And we know that Mendocino County has this proud history of, Uh, making, you know, new breeds and varieties and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, Taylor, did you just want to mention that issue briefly, kind of what you've been poking around the edges on?
4: Yeah. um, So focusing on appellations of origins or geographic designations, I feel like that will really change cannabis. I think Mendocino can be like the next Napa Valley. I think there's that type of equity in Mendocino. um, And furthermore, there's... Potential in different countries around the world—Morocco, uh, India, China—places with a, a deep history and genetic history of cannabis. I think with uh, federal legalization, we'll be able to really poke into that a little bit more and see how our aid programs can help lift countries out of um, poverty to benefit their communities and cannabis as well.
3: Great, thank you. So before we move on to discussing enforcement, everyone's favorite topic, I wanted to ask you quickly, have you done this research in any county other than Mendocino, and do you plan to if you haven't?
0: Uh, Up to this point, we have not, not our team, at least. Uh, Like I said, I've got my colleagues at UC Berkeley. I think we have a similar center out of UC Irvine. Um, So they might have done some more things in Southern California. There's a bunch of scattershot research where people go and do a case study here and there and that sort of thing. And I've had my toe in the water a little bit in Sonoma and Lake County. Uh, But otherwise, you know, uh, up to now, not so much. Uh, There is another research team out of Humboldt State that is doing some stuff around cannabis in Humboldt and the kind of region butting up against Humboldt and Mendocino. Um, so that that's, that's as far as I know, Jen.
3: Okay, thank you. And just one more quick question on the subject of ecology before we move on to enforcement. I know someone had mentioned um, that they had done some farm visits, and that's when they had really been able to get an idea of um, how cannabis was being grown on these small homestead farms and they had come away with the impression that it is oftentimes grown in a more sustainable fashion than traditional agricultural crops. So uh, who was it that had the pleasure of going out on some farm visits and would you like to just speak a little bit about what that experience was like and maybe how, how did you connect with the farmers who invited you to visit their farms?
4: Yeah um So I had the benefit of visiting a small farmer out in Mendocino who also does vegetable crop production. And it was amazing to see after graduating and learning all about these sustainable practices, uh, learning about them deeply, and then going to a cannabis farm and seeing them actually implemented was incredible. Um, It just made me so proud to be studying this community, it, it does so much better, uh, in terms of sustainability, we need research to prove this, but from my mind's eye, it does so much better than traditional ag using conventional methods of fertilizing their plants, watering, all that stuff. So it was just great to see different practices like mulching, fallowing, but also putting cardboard and alfalfa hay down to make sure the nutrients and the, uh, micro, uh, the biology of the soil is still going, even though it's fallowed.
3: Absolutely. And is that something that you would be interested in doing more of as your research progresses, doing more farm visits?
4: I would love that. It would be great. Um, Getting up there can be a challenge. Uh, We also have to get funding for this research. Uh, We have to apply and get grants. So we're hoping to do another round of research grant funding soon so that we can do more of these visits and, get some documentation of what the small farmers are like in Mendocino
3: County. Wonderful, all right. So it is about that time to open up our phone lines. So I'm gonna go ahead and give out our on-air phone number. And then in the meantime, we're gonna continue chatting about the thrilling topic of enforcement. So if you would like to call in, if you have a question or a comment for any of our three researchers here today, um, please give us a call. Our number is 707. 895 2448. That is 707 895 2448, and we will be happy to take your call. All right, while we're waiting to see if we have any callers, we are on to enforcement. So, what findings did you have around the topic of enforcement during your research?
4: So, I think we can break enforcement into Uh, Understanding regulation, enforcement of regulation, and then enforcement of the black market. Mm -hmm. Um, My understanding is that about 90% of cannabis production is uh, illegal in Mendocino County. So the legal market is uh, in competition with the black market and it's doing quite well. (laughs) Uh, But it seems like enforcement is pretty understaffed. Yes. is having difficulty even getting out and uh put, stamping out these illegal growers and from what we have seen is um the enforcement side when they do uh catch these illegal growers they can be large in scale sometimes a couple thousand plants um so we want to focus on those larger ones and make sure that we're getting those out of the way first and avoiding tackling smaller farmers who are doing less of a ecological
5: impact. Uh, Prisa, Keith, do you have anything to add to that? Um, no, I think you already covered it. I just I would reemphasize that it seems like the local police force there the enforcement there is severely understaffed. And they're just kind of dealing with limited staff, limited time. You have burglaries and crime on one end and you have having to deal with cannabis enforcement on one end, they're just really spread thin. And that kind of like creates um, a disadvantage for legal growers because there's this huge, um, barely enforced it seems um, illegal market because there's just no manpower um, to get that done. So it's, it's also a disadvantage. Not only I guess for being illegal, of course you don't want illegal activity, but also puts the good legal growers who are you know trying to do what's right and work legally into the system that they're just still competing with a large um, illegal market and that. I imagine
3: hurts a lot of your sales. Yeah. Well, it looks like we have a-
0: call. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Jane.
3: It looks like we have a caller here. So I was wondering, is it? can you hold that thought for a moment and let's take this caller and then we'll come back to the enforcement? Is that sure. okay? Okay, great. All right, we're gonna go ahead and put that caller through. So hi, caller, you are live on the Cannabis Hour. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for allowing us to call in. I'm so glad that we're talking. Um, uh, We live um, near Cache Creek along Highway 20 um, east of Clear Lake in a community of one and two and five-acre parcels that um, was kind of purchased by um, retirees. Um, We have horses and stuff like that, so it's a nice little community. And in the last few years... The properties in our area um, have been bought up by different people that don't speak English. Um, and there's big fences all around all of these properties in our nice little community. And they're all growing marijuana. And it's it's difficult for us um, retirees um wanting to move to a nice place that's calm and, you know, and nice to have um, all of these properties purchased and these large fences going up. And then certain times of the year, there's all sorts of activity of strange people coming into the valley. And uh, I guess they're harvesting the marijuana. I don't smoke marijuana. I don't know. Um, uh, But we see... um, Every once in a while, we see a sheriff or two—not too many—but but from our standpoint, it's so difficult for us with these smaller um, grows. I mean, they're five hundred, a thousand plants, acre, two acres, and they're using county water. Uh, we're on county water here, and so they're using our water to make money with, and. I just wanted to let you know that this part of it is very difficult for the normal person in this world. So so those are my comments here.
3: Thank you, caller. Thanks for calling in there. And it looks like we have one more caller holding, so we're going to quickly put that caller through. Hi, caller. You're live on the Cannabis Hour.
2: Hey, thank you very much uh, again for taking calls. Um, I am not in the cannabis business. I am in the spirits business. And I look back at what happened with spirits after Prohibition, and what actually happened is uh, the uh, various governments, both uh, federal, uh, state, and local, partnered with producers to create the regulations that existed after prohibition, some of which we still live with today and some of which have changed. But my point is that um, you know they listen to, they being lawmakers, listen to um, well, mostly large producers at the time and now that there's a lot of small producers of spirits, they're listening to those people too. So there was a lot of illegal spirits production before Prohibition and even during, of course, and, and after, and even to this day. Um, my, my upshot here, what I'm getting at, is that I see a lot of, of regulation being made and even assumptions being made on both sides, uh, judgments about morality and such, and all these things happened before, during, and after Prohibition, and even to this day, when I got licensed to make absinthe, you know, when I started making absinthe, when I started making whiskey, I said death, death threats in this county from people who are adamantly opposed to alcohol. This used to be a dry county even before Prohibition. So the whole thing is that if we can find a way to uh, work it out together, and my real question is, do any of you think it's possible that um, the people in government can get past their own personal feelings about it, their own uh, moral judgments of it, and can the people in, let's say, the planning department get past their own moral judgments of it uh, to uh, facilitate legality, because this will alleviate the black market. And as long as it's difficult to get permitted and difficult to get licensed and whatever it takes, there's always going to be this black market. And even in spirits, believe it or not, there's still a black market. There's still, you know, there was a major bust in Florida a number of years ago where there was a huge distillery with 85 employees producing counterfeit Myers rum and counterfeit Jack Daniels and on and on. They had the bottles, the labels, everything. And, and it just wasn't right. So my thing is that as long as there's going to be um, – what appears to the small producers as the set of impossible hoops to jump through and the bar always moving or whatever the heck it is from my observation, right or wrong, as long as it's that complicated, there's always going to be a black market. And do we have the courage? My question, do we have the courage and the fortitude to, uh, simplify the process, uh, approach it from a, um, uh, less punitive, uh, position to, make or carve out a niche for uh legal grows and uh, make it easy for those black people in the black market to uh get qualified get certified whatever it takes so i know it's a long one but thanks for your time appreciate it yeah
3: thank you so much that is some really insightful and interesting commentary and i certainly hope that it is possible. I think the future remains to be seen Um, and we have only a few minutes left here. We have six minutes left. so I'm going to go to Dr. Keith Taylor to finish what he was saying around the topic of enforcement there before we took these callers. If you can um, remember that train of thought, I would love to hear what your comments were on
0: enforcement. Jen, in responding to that, um, you know, I can respond to the whole the enforcement area by also responding to the two collars. Um, I, I feel like these are all inter interlinked. So the problems that law enforcement is dealing with is largely because we have this gray market, even in California where it's legal. It's just challenging to onboard the small farmers under the current legal regime. Uh, speaking to you know the I would say the anxieties of the first caller, uh, that does mean that you're going to have entrants that come into the market that might not fit in with, well with the local community, shall we say. Uh, and then with the first color, the second color, he's talking about how do you onboard these folks then? So that way they are operating on the up and up. Uh, I think that what we need, there, there's a lot of past hurt feelings over the decades that have occurred. And for all the right reasons, I understand there's been tensions, there's been fights. Uh, there's been pushback, but we're here now. This is where we're at. It's legal. It's here to stay. And I think what we need to do is we need to have, have some folks putting their emotions to the side and saying, what does it look like for us to stand this up? And as we stand this up in such a way that allows for the onboarding of folks that aren't licensed, um, you know, how do we create these carrots so we can have more effective sticks along the way? I, I think... When we think about enforcement and people not following the rules or people upsetting the local community, we tend to go immediately to sticks. They hurt me, therefore I'm going to hurt them back. I can tell you in social science, that tends to be a recipe for disaster. <laughs> um, and it kind of goes against like a lot of uh, how humans want to inter- react up front. What we actually need to do is sit back. Understand what the lay of the land is and figure out what this more reasonable approach is and how it can create kind of cooler, cultivate cooler heads, help out with community impact, onboard folks, and then make sure that anyone new that's coming in follows the local rules and adheres to that. That would also do a great deal to alleviate a lot of the pressures that law enforcement is dealing with, too. And if you think about it, If the tens of thousands, supposedly, of small cannabis farmers there, moved over into licensure, as other folks come into the market and they're not following the licensing, there's going to be a lot of self-monitoring that happens. There's going to be a lot of folks that say, we've got good policies and rules. That guy over there is not following them. I'm going to report them. So you actually kind of create community monitoring that occurs along the way. And this is just a good marker for how you do great Resource management along the way from everything from how you operate the cannabis industry, but also how you manage wildlife resources, water, and all these other sort of things. So, what I'm encouraging folks to really think about here is how we can move past these previous impasses, put those to the side, and look toward a brighter future where by working together we can address a lot of these common issues.
3: Thank you, Dr. Taylor. That is very insightful. So we have just two minutes left here. So I want to make sure that we share contact information for folks that are listening who might want to get involved with your research study. So can one of you go ahead and just share um, the best way for folks to get in touch with you?
4: Yeah, um, my email is T-L-G-I-A-M-O at UCDavis.edu. And you can find me on the uh, Mendocino Cannabis Community Facebook page as well.
3: And so are you still actively seeking cannabis cultivators to participate in your study? Absolutely. Okay, great. So also, if you uh, didn't hear that email address or you would uh, just like me to send you a connection to any of these three researchers here today, you can always email me also. My email address is kzyxcannabishour at gmail.com. And so we have just two minutes left here. So um, just any last thoughts that you would like to leave our listeners with?
0: Taylor, Parisa, you first.
3: Um, thank you, Keith. Well, one of the things I've heard a lot of cannabis
4: farmers saying is the way that regulation is done now, the way that um, getting compliant is done now is basically death by a thousand paper cuts. And the last thing we want to do is bleed out the value of the legacy farmers. So in order to get more people into uh, compliance, we need to make it easier for them to do that. Those my closing thoughts.
5: Yes, I definitely agree. And I think that the best thing ultimate, ultimately would be federal um, approval, <laughs> having it be legal on the federal scale. And throughout these interviews, um, I have found that the farmers here are very passionate about their products and what they do. And that's very very um beautiful <laughs> it's very beautiful and i really want you guys to be able to keep going and that's i guess my closing statement is that i really love what's happening what's happening in Mendocino?
0: and i'll give kind of a uh, both a, a a dark and then appreciative uh, thought here and the dark thought is okay we only we've just got about
3: 10 seconds left so just quickly
0: positive then If the cannabis farmers would work together, they could stand up a multi-billion dollar industry and lock in their current status.
3: Thank you so much. This has been Parisa Kovasi, Taylor Guillamo, and Dr. Keith Taylor from the UC Davis Cannabis Research Center here with us today uh, Cannabis and Hemp Research Center. Thank you for joining me, and I'll be back two weeks today with another episode of the Cannabis Hour for you. Thanks for listening, and have a beautiful day.